and welcome to SciPod Radio, where we bring you the story behind the science. I'm your host, Tom Render, and today we're joined by Brian Keating. Uh, Brian is a professor of, of physics at the Center of Astrophysics and Space Science at the University of California. He's also the associate director of the Arthur Clarke Center for Human Imagination, as well as being a public speaker, an inventor, and an author of the critically acclaimed book, Losing the Nobel Prize. He's actually won numerous accolades, uh, including Nature's Magazine's Best Book of the Season, and it's been selected as one of the books of the year by Science Friday, Amazon, Science News, Physics Today, Forbes, <laughs> Symmetry Magazine, let me the list goes on. Uh, so it's quite the resume, and I'm really delighted to have you here, Brian. Uh, so welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks a lot. I'm glad we got to connect. Yeah, perfect. So um, what we'll, we'll dive in. I appreciate there's probably going to be a bunch of people that actually really do genuinely know who you are and are probably a long-time follower, but there'll be a segment that, that don't know the story, don't know who you are yet. Um, so could we start with a little bit of the background? You know, if this is comic book episode one, you know, how did you get going? Did you arrive on an asteroid? You know, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so my origin story, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, uh, I began my astronomical life, uh, as a, as a pre-teenager, as a 12 year old, as it turns out. And <clears throat> the, uh, observation that I made, you know, decades before Google of, uh, the moon accompanied by a fairly bright star, what I thought was a star, or it could have been, you know, American airlines flight or something like that. Uh, yeah. for all I knew, I, uh, I saw this bright object next to the moon and it took me about a week of research in, in the library. Again, this is 1980s and before Google, uh, by a long yeah. shot. You can't, you can't just say, Hey, Alexa, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, you could, you wouldn't get an answer for 29 years. Right. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> Uh, so I actually did my first scientific research. I used the New York Times. I used their meteorology page, their weather, and the planetary uh, depiction that they had. And I saw the moon was next to a bright planet, Jupiter. And I thought that was amazing because before that time, I thought you needed a, a telescope in space or something to see the uh, to see any other planet. And uh, mm. it was just a startling revelation to me. And so I set out to earn money by sweeping floors in a delicatessen to make enough money to buy a telescope, which I did. And then after that, I repeated Galileo's observations of, uh, of, the, uh, of the moon's surface and was just amazed by it. And uh, also his discovery of, of Jupiter's uh, four giant moons, which now bear his name. Uh, so, you know, I'm still waiting for, for them to name them the, the Brian moons, but, but uh, that's not going to happen anytime soon. <laughs> you never know. And uh, that took me on a path of becoming an astronomer, although I didn't think it would be a probable career choice. I thought, you know, astronomers were like wizards. You know, there was many more applicants than job openings. Uh, so uh, I didn't know you could be an astronomer. It was such a crazy idea. But uh, fast forward about 15 years, I became uh, you know, a, a professional astronomer doing research on my own and coming up with an idea for a small refracting telescope, not unlike the one that I had used as a 12-year-old. As a so things came full circle, and that's where the bicep story really took off, this tiny telescope located at the South Pole, which uh, had an impact to shake up the entire world of cosmology for a time. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So, um, could you give us a little bit more? Of these? Some people will obviously know about that, the bicep and bicep one and two. Um, but could, could you give a little bit more context on to what that is for those that don't know? 
Yeah, so I'll take a step back. My father was a, a, a pretty renowned scientist. He won a lot of awards in mathematics and quantum mechanics, etc. And uh, for a while, I was living under his shadow. I didn't ever think I could be as great a scientist as him. And uh, I had this competitive streak in me that really wanted to supersede him. Yeah. And I knew I could do that unequivocally so by winning the Nobel Prize. So that became a goal of mine in life, which was, uh, you know, kind of a shame to say, you know, maybe uh, that that was that was one of my fo focus, uh, you know, points as a kid. And yeah. Later on, I did come up with an idea which had as a side benefit, uh, in addition to discovering the earliest evidence for the uh, universe's existence, uh, it would certainly garner a Nobel Prize for the, its creator. And so as its creator uh, of this tiny telescope called BICEP, uh, this was a telescope meant to go farther back in time than any telescope had ever gone, namely to go back to the period that scientists call inflation. So you may know that uh, if you if you've been to uh, you know taken a, a, a primary school physics class, you may know that uh, let's say you want to know the speed of a ball after you drop it uh, using Newton's uh, laws of motion. So you drop it uh, from some height and it'll acquire some some velocity. Well, you can determine the velocity exactly so if you know a few things about the ball and uh, mainly what was its initial height above the ground, and that will tell you its speed subsequent to that time. So the initial conditions of a physics problem are paramount in importance. They basically determine everything. And yet we knew very little about what was the initial condition of the universe itself. In other words, what caused the Big Bang? I mean, haven't you ever wondered, uh, as I'm sure I have, or your listeners have rather, I know I have, what happened you yeah. know, on the, on the Tuesday before the Big Bang? <laughs> you know, what, yeah. what, what was going <laughs> what on was back then? Like? Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. It would have been a pretty interesting time, I think. So uh, I set out to really answer that question by building a telescope that didn't use light primarily. It was really trying to see what are called gravitational waves. And these are similar to what LIGO has discovered. They're a consequence of uh, Einstein's famous 100-year-old plus theory of general relativity. And this, uh, this consequence called gravitational waves would be present if they're present from two relatively puny black holes crashing into each other, only 30 times the mass of the sun. I figured, well, what if all the matter in the universe was exploding and not over a second, but over a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second and the very first fiery, hellish moments of the Big Bang's existence. So that was the object of the BICEP telescope. It uses what are called microwaves. And those microwaves would contain the imprint, the imprimatur, if you will, of, uh, of this inflationary epoch via its gravitational waves. And uh, we, in fact, did discover them, or so we thought. Okay, perfect. And I suppose the, the question that might be on a few people's minds, certainly on mine, um, is why does that matter? Like if we're going to look at the beginning of the universe – Oh, what kind of impact would that have? What would that inform us of exactly? Okay, this point we started. Great. Yeah. <laughs> and now what? <laughs> well, you know, it's kind of like saying, well, uh, nothing matters before the day I was born. I mean, it's a perspective. Yeah. I think uh, <laughs> one could adopt that perspective. You know, I have a pretty healthy ego, but even, even I think that it's important to know what happened before I was born. Uh, but more yeah. more than that, really understanding, as you asked me, my origin story. Well, we want to know the origin mm -hmm. story of the universe. It's not just for superheroes, right? And so the yeah. origin of the universe is a very uh, special moment, unlike any other moment, in that 
the die, you know, perhaps is cast for what will happen uh, in the universe's future, what the universe is made of, what the forces and dynamics and 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 properties of of uh, of every element of every molecule and and the fate of the universe itself, in some sense, could be determined at that moment. Or perhaps more interestingly, not. In other words, it may be that the Big Bang wasn't the beginning of everything and that the universe has perhaps always existed. Or maybe it was the beginning of everything, but there's more to the universe than meets our eye and that there may be what's called a multiverse. And these, to me, are where science borders on metascience and physics borders on metaphysics. And even maybe, dare I say, ventures into the world that was previously reserved by philosophers or gasp theologians. And when, why not? Because these are the biggest questions that a human being could potentially ask. Exactly. Like, has this already happened? Have we already done this before? Does it happen in parallel? All those kind of big questions that hopefully one day will be answered, but currently not not so much. So, um, okay, so that's the, that's the purpose of, of the Bicep Project. And what, what happened during that project? So what we, uh, what we did is build a microwave telescope. Now, microwaves are a very f- special form of uh, electromagnetic radiation of light, much, much longer wavelength, about 2,000 times the wavelength of optical light that our eyes can see. And uh, there are shorter versions of radio waves, if you like. And these waves propagate at the speed of light, just like optical light. And they are, in a cosmic sense, related to the fusion of the first two elements or so on the periodic table, which is, by the way, in it's his 150th birthday. So we owe you know Mendeleev a, a birthday cake, I suppose, of all yeah. the 119 known elements. Uh, no, that would certainly kill him. Uh, <laughs> so the, the uh, periodic table really... The elements besides hydrogen and helium are really latecomers on the cosmic scene in that the first two elements, hydrogen and helium, were essentially all that was needed to make stars, which then later would make the heavier elements of what we're comprised of in different forms. And these uh, and these elements and and uh, and and early generations of of uh, particles, they when they're fused, just like fusion or uh, on in a nuclear reactor, say uh, that's trying to develop atomic energy using fusion or a fusion bomb, they give off tremendous amounts of heat and light. And that heat and light eventually, as the universe expanded, cooled off and stretched from optical wavelengths, half a half of a uh, of a of a uh, of a micron sort of wave length these are tiny tiny wavelengths and it stretched to millimeters in wavelength and that stretch over over the last 13.79 billion years has produced a, a bath of microwaves which are irradiating the earth and everything in the universe with uh, but luckily they're only at a frosty temperature of about three degrees kelvin and so by looking at this oldest light in the universe which is a relic of how the universe looked a uh, 400,000 years after the big bang we could search for an imprint, not of light, because it's the oldest light in the universe. Therefore, you can't ask what happened, you know, before that using light. But just as you know, I can't see the, through the walls of my house, but I can hear my kids making noise, uh, you know, audibly. Uh, you can use a different form of radiation, a form of, of, in this case, gravitational radiation, to look through the invisible, penet- impenetrable barrier uh, that that was uh, present before the, you know, first seconds after the Big Bang. Mm, interesting. And what would have happened if what you heard was in a really deep, godlike voice saying, ready, go. 
<laughs> that's right. Well, that's what uh, Samuel Moore said, right? What hath God brought, right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Um, and then, and then, what was the uh, the outcome of that project? Yeah. So what we discovered uh, in 2014 announced a great fanfare at the Center for Astrophysics at Harvard University was that we had mm. discovered these waves of gravity called, which we have a crazy name for, we call them B modes. And this B mode polarization signal had been propagating throughout the universe uh, as we claimed it since the beginning of time, since a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang. And this was phenomenal discovery. It was called the greatest discovery equal to all the discoveries made up until that point by none other than the famous cosmologist uh, Lawrence Krauss. And many other scientists uh, proclaimed that we would soon win Nobel Prizes, although by that time I had been kind of uh, unceremoniously booted out of the leadership of, of this project that I had helped to create. And so I wasn't at this event. Uh, and nevertheless, we made this announcement five years ago, and it really shook up the world. There were front page articles in every newspaper and magazine on every continent. Uh, I got news of it, including Antarctica, where the telescope was located. There's actually a weekly newspaper in Antarctica, uh, which well, you, can, you can subscribe to online, luckily for you. You don't, you don't have to leave the cozy confines of, uh, of the British Isles. Uh, in our yeah. case, uh, we, we received you know fame, instantaneous fame, millions of people tuning in, crashing our servers uh, that were uh, hosting the announcement. Uh, but the party didn't last long. And uh, for a while, we, uh, we expected criticism because what we had done was a little bit unorthodox. We had, had, uh, a, uh, we had submitted a paper without it being peer-reviewed, and, and that wasn't so uncommon. But what was a little less common was having a press release before mm. we had had a paper really submitted or accepted. Uh, and we had yeah. done that for reasons that um, I personally, you know, felt motivated by at the time, uh, the Nobel Prize, you know, implications, again, just speaking for myself, not for anyone else. But uh, we were clearly worried that there were competitors that would like to scoop our results that would go out and maybe use the data in our paper if we submitted it in the normal channels. And they might uh, use it unfairly in proposals and papers of their own. So yeah, we absolutely. felt, yeah, we felt it was necessary to publicize it, and we did. Uh, and then uh, for a while, things seemed hunky dory until uh, a couple of weeks later, we started to get word that a team of scientists at Princeton University, which is, you know, I always call it, they're kind of like the Inquisition <laughs> in astronomy, yeah. at least in America, and and this team was uh, was you know pounding hard on our data and looking at it and claiming that we had made. Uh, made a mistake. Not that our results were contaminated with a blunder. We left the lens cap on the telescope. Uh, we forgot to, you know, take the right selfie settings. Uh, but no, that yeah. we had actually observed an astronomical signal. They didn't debate that, but they doubted whether or not it was a cosmological signal. And they said mm. that what we had observed was actually contamination from the Milky Way galaxy. And it took uh, several months to come to the bottom of it. Uh, and we eventually working with a former competitor, the Planck satellite, we actually ended up uh, putting out a result that basically uh, disputed our original claim uh, that was made to great fanfare. And it was mm. interesting to me that, you know, when you know, scientific announcements like ours or even the ones that were made by the Event Horizon Telescope, the, they rightfully make, you know, front page headlines. But less often mm. in the case of experiments like ours, at least, I hope not for the Event Horizon Telescope, 
uh, it's almost never that the public finds out. You know, I still meet people nowadays who say, you know, well, did you end up winning the Nobel Prize? Like, how, how did things end up turning out? And, you know, isn't that great? And, 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 you know, what's your new project? You know, with the implication being that you haven't, you know, that you already completed the first project. So, um, yeah. you know, we can talk about the sociology of publishing in science and, and how uh, those decisions are made and, and public relations are they're playing an increasingly important role in the dissemination of scientific discoveries. Yeah, absolutely they are. It is one of those, when it's a very competitive field like that, and you, you sit on, so you sit, there's probably hundreds of examples that I'm sure we probably shouldn't name, where somebody has taken the time to go through and not given a press release, and then somebody else did, and it was a case of, you know, who was first, not who was right. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. you get in this, this scenario, and then, and to be honest, in my my personal opinion is, well, why would we not already be talking about this? You, I'm sure you didn't say, here's a peer-reviewed journal article. You probably said something like, this is the results that we got so far. We still need to go through peer review, but this is what we found. It seems really exciting. Like, getting people excited about science, for me, is never a problem. Like, how is that going to be a problem? Like, yes, you don't want to manipulate the truth, but you weren't. You were saying, this is what we found. Now let's have a look at it. Make sure we're right. Um you know, I personally think that's a, a a wonderful way to have an open discussion about science. Uh, everything, you know, cards on the table here is what we got. Have a look. Yep, exactly. Mm-hmm. I, I agree completely. I mean, uh, the open sourcing that we attempted to do was in part an ability, you know, with the ability or with the hope that people would verify our results because it's you know be very hard for somebody to go out and build a cosmological telescope and put it at the South Pole. <laughs> you know, replication <laughs> is is basically impossible so we would either be waiting for a really long time which look that's not fatal either look we waited you know billions of years to find the signal right so (laughs) waiting a couple more is is not the end of the world Uh, but at the time it felt very urgent it felt extremely high pressure and in my case as i say only speaking for myself i felt the nobel prize was at stake and it wasn't until much later that i realized uh, ironically having conceived of the experiment in part uh, in uh, resulting in the desire to win a Nobel Prize, that I had uh, really come to view the Nobel Prize as uh, almost a menacing feature of modern science and one that has great detrimental effects to not only uh, scientists who seek it, you know, perhaps as I do greedily, so, but also on science itself and how it's perceived and what the value and the impact of science really ought to be. And, and so I think it's an important conversation that we need to have. Yeah, absolutely. It is a quite a critical point, is it? Because it, there's two sides to that whole discussion, isn't there? There's the you know it pushes people to the point of you know would you have taken the same steps? Would you have done things differently? And, and in which way would that have gone? Because let's say that Nobel Prize isn't there, and you don't have that to aim for, would you even have begun the project? Yeah, I think I think we would have. I think, uh, but certainly the way that public perceives science is uh, dictated heavily by the Nobel Prize. Uh, in fact, I just witnessed this two weeks ago with the discovery of the Event Horizon Telescope announced to great fanfare. And you may have noted you know, that there were a couple of uh, individual scientists who were singled out for great, uh, for great credit. And, and certainly they had accomplished a great, uh, a great finding of, of enormous significance. But the 
desire to promulgate one or two people uh, as as sort of the you know as the responsible entity you know the discoverer of this event I think that was uh, very unfortunate I thought that did a great disservice to science I, I like that you know women were getting kind of their fair sh- uh, share of the spotlight because so often as I point in the book women have been disregarded but but to put mm. out that a single person really, you know, in, in the case of the Event Horizon Telescope, I won't name the person because I don't think it's important. She didn't have any role in it. She was just sort of uh, put out there by her university media office for, you know, purposes of, of really promoting themselves and, and wanting to celebrate her, but also to, you know, position them to win a Nobel Prize potentially, as, as I heard about from many, many people, including, you know, Congress people in the United States and, uh, you know, just immediately saying that this one person you know, she better win a Nobel Prize. And I, I found that very disheartening because, again, it sets up the Nobel Prize as this, you know, godlike entity. I, I always say, like, you know, people revere the Nobel Prize so much. They actually will say things to me when I say, well, you know, there actually was no, there's no reason why you can't give it out posthumously. Let's just say that. Um, and, uh, and they'll say, well, you know, if you gave it to someone who's dead, it would diminish the, uh, it would diminish the impact because they really wouldn't benefit from it. I said, oh, well, yeah, I guess I, I forgot that. That was Newton's, you know, fourth law. Uh, of you know, of, you know <laughs> yeah. that that you have to have it be an impact to to motivate scientists and uh, you know similarly if you give it out to teams of people oh well that will diminish the the people that really uh, well I, I forget the law of thermodynamics that talks about you know how only three people can make a discovery and so I think it it's yeah. <laughs> very detrimental to to subscribe you know again I don't have any um, any uh, hesitancy any any conflict with any of the winners of it they the one thing. So I was also asked to nominate the winners of the Nobel Prize the next year after we retracted our claim of detecting this enormously valuable, important signal and and attributing it instead to dust. I was later asked to nominate the winners of the 2016 Nobel Prize, which arguably could have been mine had we not made a blunder and had I not been, you know, removed from the leadership of the team. So there I was. And I'd be kind of like you, you know, going, uh, you know, interviewing uh, you, you know, asking me to be an interview. I, I asked you to be on your show, but 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 anyway, let's say somebody asks you, uh, you know, you ask somebody to be on uh, uh, on your on your podcast and the side podcast, and uh, and they say, well, you know what, uh, Tom, I, you know, I'd rather be on Brian Cox's podcast. Can you get me on Brian? You know, like you're you're not as good as Brian, so uh, please put me on. That would feel terrible, and that's kind of what the second half of the title's double entendre of my book means, losing the Nobel Prize, in that we really should get rid of the Nobel Prize in its current form and replace it with something better that's reformed, that maybe still uses the Nobel name, but reflects how science is done today, not in 1896 when Alfred Nobel's will went into effect. Mm. So... I suppose on that, what, what would the, I'm guessing you've had some thoughts around what that might look like, or um, just from obviously you'd be your point of view. But what what would you you know if you could somebody said yeah okay Brian let's let's do it what what would you have yeah what, so what so in the book I mean the book is mostly about the cosmology it's it's really a memoir of what it feels like to be a scientist to be a human being as I said you know kind of wrestling with with things like uh, wanting to prove myself to my to my parents and and but also to give an insider's glimpse of what it's like to be an experimentalist I mean uh, bless his soul you know Stephen Hawking was a phenomenal scientist he was a theorist um, Lisa Randall she's a brilliant writer popularizer scientist she 
she's a theorist, a Brian Greene, Brian, Car- you know, all these people are wonderfully brilliant scientists, but they're not experimentalists. They're not building the instrumentation, the hardware that leads to the discoveries that they can then test and speculate about. So I thought it was important to have a book written by uh, an experimental scientist and one who is in the trenches really dealing with all the different forces that are at work rather than just kind of the the lone person who who has an idea that's kind of cute and wants to explore it further. And I think those are valuable contributions that those theoretical physicists make as well in popularizing science. But but, so the book is mainly about that. Uh, It has three chapters about the Nobel Prize out of 13. And in those three chapters, I go through, I, I sort of, well, after I was asked to be a nominator for winners of the Nobel Prize, the, the instructions that they gave me were in such uh, tension and such conflict with Alfred Nobel's intent when he died. I mean, this is the most famous will ever left, as far as I know. And, and yet it's completely transgressed and violated such that if it were a person giving his fortune, you know, to his relatives, I think the relatives would have a great case, you know, to sue for malpractice and misadministration, malfeasance uh, for the way the will has been executed. So I put on a hat as an executor of the will and saying, well, what did he mean? What did he want? What would he have intended? And I found five glaring you know, cases where you know, either his intention or the application of the way the, you know, the will has been carried out in the form of the Nobel Prizes uh, has been horrendously you know, kind of distorted, in my opinion. And uh, and they're not really all, all novel uh, suggestions, although one one is is fairly novel. But but uh, but most of them are shared by the entire scientific community, such that even one of the secretaries of the Nobel Committee, you know, the Nobel Foundation, took to you know co- uh, criticize some of my comments on the Nobel Prize reforms that I propose uh, in a uh, in a magazine online called The Conversation. And in it, you know, he really says, well, we agree with you, but what should we do? You know, uh, go back in time and take away the money from, you know, someone's, someone's estate. Um, and I, I respond, I think the, you know, you're ascribing venality, you know, to a case where it's really about uh, rewriting history. So when you leave out Rosalind Franklin from winning a Nobel Prize because of this rule that was only implemented years after she died, that, you know, living persons only can win the Nobel Prize, which, by the way, hasn't been carried out for two white Swedish men. <laughs> so two white Swedish guys died and still won the Nobel Prize after their death, but that's besides the point. Uh, so I go yeah, through, <laughs> yeah. So I go through the uh, kind of reforms in these three chapters, uh, based on my personal experience and exposure and how science is done. And to date, I haven't heard a single scientist disagree with the any of the proposals that I make. Uh, more, it's just, uh, well, you know, we've kind of left it as is, or or perhaps they'll say, well, you just have sour grapes because you didn't win it, and you really shouldn't, co- you know, uh, comment on it because you don't, you haven't won a Nobel Prize. And I say, well, oh yeah, I guess that's right. You know, I'm not the prime minister or the president, so I really shouldn't, co- you know, comment on their job performance. <laughs> it's kind of ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You kind of, you you do need that balance in almost. Every scenario, I can't really think of a, a scenario where having somebody who's not in it doesn't help. Like, it always helps to have an outside perspective or to have a different perspective or, you know, for whatever reasons or motivations are kind of irrelevant. Like, if you, if it, let's say it's of the case, actually, you've only, you know, gone into looking at this because it's upsetting for you. Well, great. You still found flaws, you still found holes, and you still found a resolution to a problem. So, 
why does it matter where that came from exactly? Exactly. Um, it is, it is a, an interesting point. Okay. So, um, and just for, for anybody listening in uh, who's not sure, losing the Nobel Prize, it is available pretty much anywhere you want to go and buy it. But uh, just to, to um, give some context here, if you look on Amazon, there's 106 five-star ratings on there. There's not a single review below five stars. So I really encourage you to pick this book up and have a read. It's very interesting, uh, the different points that you make. Obviously, the science is in there as well. Uh, yeah, actually, I have to uh, – well, uh, I, will, I will correct you. I, I Although one – negative reviewer said that she didn't agree with my all my points she still thought i should win the nobel prize for literature uh but but anyway uh it's actually 106 total you know because i only check this every hour uh but there are there are three and four star there there are three and four star reviews there's no one or two star reviews so if you give me one i'll know it's you so i'll know it's your (laughs) i know i will see (laughs) okay and then so where does the the story go from there then what do you what do you current projects what are you working on at the moment yeah so right now i'm involved with a major project that has 258 scientists on all seven continents around the world and it's called the simons observatory and it really grew out of the great accomplishments bicep made so i don't want the reader or the listener to come away with the impression that bicep was a failure blundered screwed up i mean there are many experiments i talk about in the book that did and are rightfully you know kind of relegated to obscurity maybe now um uh, but bicep is not one of them because what it did was such a technological break through. And remember, it made a tremendous astronomical discovery. It just wasn't a cosmological discovery. And so that's a, that's a problem of interpretation, not of technical execution. So that might be a subtle point, but it allows us now to build more advanced instrumentation that can take advantage of the lessons learned from BICEP predominantly that when you go and look for a signal, sometimes you're likely to find it. And in our case, we uh, now, and the BICEP team, which I'm uh, very, only very loosely affiliated with now, not surprisingly, uh, that <laughs> they're also uh, you know kind of competitors with the Simons Observatory, and they're trying to build uh, a, a, the ultimate detector, which will do uh, what we had originally hoped to do, to measure cosmic signals, but also measure signals from the galaxy, from dust. And the sum of those two signals, then if you have a signal channel that's dedicated only to the dust signal, for example, then when you measure the total signal, the cosmological signal, perhaps containing information on B modes from inflation, that you can subtract that combined signal with dust and cosmic signal. You can subtract the dust signal alone from that. So we have basically a whole new experiment within an experiment. And those experiments are to go out and suck up the dust. Uh, unfortunately, we can't go out into the universe and have a dust buster and get rid of the dust or a Dyson cleaner and get rid of it. But we can do the next best thing, which is to have dedicated experiment within an experiment. And that is dedicated just to dust. Hmm. Okay. So I suppose the, this leads to what I often like to ask about is how, how does it you – know, we describe our listeners as the average person. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. How would the average person get involved? You know, I'm not an astronomist, but I, I'm interested in this. I you know, look at the stars or perhaps you have a telescope at home or something like that. Can you get more involved with these types of projects or um, – how would you go about that? Yeah, so what we're trying to do now is really engage the public through a series of different uh, mechanisms, uh, primarily through building support for the next decade of astronomy here in the United States. And I know a similar thing is happening in Europe as well. Uh, in the U.S., we call it a decadal survey, where we go out and we identify as a field uh, many different potentially promising avenues to explore the cosmos, ranging from 
uh, studies of meteorites and asteroids in our local neighborhood, all the way out to the origins of the universe itself. And so some of the great, exciting telescope discoveries you've seen recently from the Event Horizon Telescope to the LIGO, LISA, uh, Virgo discoveries made of, of black holes and neutron stars uh, coalescing to uh, the search for habitable worlds beyond our solar system using optical telescopes, infrared telescopes, and even the search mm. for extraterrestrial intelligence using a variety of different technological approaches. All of those fit into the program of, of the future decadal research that we're going to do in astronomy in both the U.S. and Europe. So I encourage people to do that and, and, to, uh, and stay passionate. You know, I always... Look, I, I look at the at the headlines and I usually cringe because, you know, it's so much political and who really cares, you know, what I think about, you know, uh, the president of the United States uh, or you might think about Brexit. Uh, it feels good to sound off on Twitter or Facebook and, and you're either talking to just, you know, a bunch of people in the same echo chamber as you and you're not going to convince anybody anyway. But I always say, you know, there's no, there's no, I'll, I'll, I'll put it in British uh, parlance, you know, there's no labor constellation, you know, there's no, <laughs> there's no uh, Tory, uh, you know, planets out there, right? So the yeah. thing I love the most about what I do in astronomy is that it is a safe zone for politics. There is no politics. It's a politics-free zone. I love it. Perfect. So lots of opportunities for people to get involved. Um, also, perhaps as a hobbyist as well. Could people get involved that yeah, way? Yeah, absolutely. I did as I did certainly. Uh, there are magazines throughout the uh, United States and UK and elsewhere. Uh, I subscribe to Astronomy Magazine, Sky and Telescope Magazine here in the US. I think there's uh, Universe Today and other things. But but actually, lately, podcasts and YouTube channels have gotten grown so important, yours included, and really staying connected to these huge discoveries, not just in my field. Uh, but in uh, allied fields, quantum mechanics, the search for the grand unified theories of everything, perhaps. And, and these are going to be coming to uh, coming to a head in the next decade. So it's never been a greater time in terms of resource and access. I mean, again, I had to do it back before there was even a, a, a worldwide web. Uh, I was able to do it, and your listeners can too. Perfect. Um, and I suppose then what's the um, – for going back to a little bit about yourself and – uh, the projects you're involved with at the moment. What's your, what's your sort of long-term objective? What's your, you know, where would you like to see your current projects go? What would you like to do perhaps, you know, well yeah. into the future? So I, I like to be surprised. So I don't like to say I, I will want to discover X, Y, or Z. I think that's, that's um, you know, something scientists should should avoid speaking about kind of our predilections for things. But I will say that what I'm trying to measure in the universe are its fundamental laws. What is the nature of gravity in the early universe? What is the uh, origin of structure in the universe? What is the composition of our universe, the dark matter, dark energy, ordinary matter, neutrinos, these ghostly particles? We know comparatively little about these objects. And these experiments that we build, because they use the entire universe as a laboratory, in particular the Simons Observatory, which is a $100 million project uh, being built in the high desert of the Atacama uh, Desert of northern Chile, this project that I'm the director of is going to make stunning discoveries in these fields of what's called fundamental physics, the nature of, of matter, energy, uh, uh, fields, magnetic fields, electric fields in the early universe. Nothing in my mind, at least, could be of greater importance. So it's to be surprised. It's to be struck by the fundamental, amazing 
um, you know, shocking clarity that one gets when when one does basic research. I, I like to say our research has zero practical application, <laughs> although even that's not completely true. It, it, it will end up having some practical application. That's yeah, not why we do it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so just a, a few uh, conscious of time, uh, just a few sort of closing thoughts, and um, and, and maybe a little bit, you know, how if people want to get more involved with specifically your projects or uh, or follow along with your story and uh, projects that you're involved with, can people get involved somewhere? If you uh, know you've got a website and things. Yeah, so I do I do a podcast also, which you can access from my website, which is briankeating.com. The podcast is part of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination here in the University. University of California. And uh, I do a lot with um, outreach on my YouTube channel, which is Dr. Brian Keating, Dr. Brian Keating, uh, which is where I'm found on Twitter, Facebook, elsewhere. And uh, so people can stay in touch. I have newsletters where I talk about uh, things like that. I would say attending uh, public lectures wherever you are. And then the next best thing are podcasts, YouTube lectures, uh, and, uh, and articles. Uh, and of course, you know, I can't help but refer to my book, which gives a, you know, kind of an overview of what it's like to be a real scientist working at the boundaries of human knowledge. Perfect. Great. And I, I will link up all of those different resources that you just said there below this, this podcast Great. for those listening along. And oh, what was that name? I'll, I'll put the links mm -hmm. <laughs> below. So no problem. Um, perfect. Well, th thank you very much for your time, Brian. It was, it was great to get to speak with you today and hear a little bit more about your story and uh, what you're doing. So, uh, you know, thank you very much for that. Thanks for allowing me to invite myself on your show, Tom. <laughs> no problem at all. Um, and thank you for everybody listening along. I'm glad to have you here too. And if you've enjoyed today's show, please make sure you you know, you know like this page, you, you share it with your friends or followers, whoever you want to share this with. Uh, follow the channel for, for new episodes coming out weekly. And thanks again. And uh, we will see you again next time. Thank you so much for joining in today's episode. And if you're thinking about an audiobook for your own research, please visit www.scipod.global. That's scipod.global and find out how we can help increase your science impact. Bye for now and catch you again next time.